I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. What got you there with Sean Delaney? Uh, what got you there with Sean Delaney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? I think getting feedback, seeking feedback and listening to it, not being offended by it. In fact, that kind of feedback is a gift. Always be on the prowl for feedback. It's not that you're looking to please others with everything that you do, but you want to know how what you do impacts other people. Joel Peterson is the chairman of JetBlue Airways and the founding partner of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake City-based investment management firm. Joel has a long history of successful growth capital investments in a variety of industries. He currently teaches entrepreneurial management at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, is the chairman of the board of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, as well as the chairman of the board at JetBlue Airways, and serves as director of Franklin Covey. He holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. Joel is the author of The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great, and his latest book, Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Staff. Get ready for this jam-packed episode on entrepreneurship. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand... They're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Joel Peterson, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you doing this morning? My pleasure, Sean. Good to be with you. Yeah, excited for this one. I know we're going to learn a lot in today's conversation, but I'm always intrigued by people who are accomplishing so much. What does a typical start to your day look like? It's a busy Monday morning, I'm sure. Are there any things you've done or you do currently just to set some structure, some frameworks to get your week going? It's funny. Uh, I, this is not a virtue uh, necessarily, but I do get up usually around four or five in the morning which gives me an extra few hours without interruption before anybody calls or wants to talk to me. And it allows me to sort of plan out my day and week and think about the more important things. So I think that's been one key. And I've been lucky that I'm naturally a lark. Uh, I'm married to an owl. and She doesn't understand how this happens, but... uh, I think it's been an advantage. Yeah, you you and I are the same, it sounds like, with our morning structure. So during those first few hours where you don't have any interruptions, is there anything you're doing? Or are you reading? Are you just sitting there thinking? Anything we can take away from that? Well, I'll often think about uh, the week, the month, the year. You know, I'm very goal-oriented. I like to think about what is winning? What, what will the day look like if it's been a really great day? 
And that usually means that I'm solving for two or three really important things. It's so easy to spend your day on checklists, to-dos. I used to get a lot of satisfaction out of crossing out items on a legal pad until I realized that I was always crossing out the really easy to accomplish ones. It just felt good to do that. But really, I was leaving all of the really important thorny ones till later. And so I think by getting up early and thinking about the day, I, I have a way of saying, look, this is the really important thing I've got to get done. And uh, so it's helped. Yeah, no, certainly that's something any of us can take away from and, and understand those key metrics that are really going to move us forward. So you mentioned being goal-oriented. So as a youngster, as a kid, what did you think you were going to be when you were older? So I really had no idea. New York Life uh, used to put out these little brochures, so you want to be uh, whatever. And they would describe all these careers, and I couldn't imagine any of them, but I read them all to try to figure it out. But my father was a PhD scientist, and so I grew up in a university world. I had um, natural leadership abilities, I think, or at least I was put in leadership roles. And so I thought, well, how do I combine leadership with what I saw him doing? And I figured, well, someday I'll be a university president. So that was about as far as I could think it through as a kid. So, Joel, what, what I love about these conversations and specifically with you is you've seemed to conquer multiple domains. So I, I love going through your career slightly here. And I know you got started in real estate and, and just want to know how that came to be. You, you mentioned wanting to be a university president. So what led you down the path to start in real estate? Well, it's interesting. So when I was in business school, I took classes at what they call across the river. Um, in a PhD program, thinking that that would be my ticket to becoming a university president. And I found that uh, I didn't really, I wasn't really drawn to the people or the topics that they were working on. And I really did like business. And so I started interviewing and there was a job board at uh, Harvard Business School that was outside of the placement office and didn't come through placement. And it had a little three by five card on it that said, looking for someone to develop buildings on the French Riviera. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute. Yeah, sign me that up. is just way too cool. <laughs> I mean, I, my high school buddies will never believe. <laughs> and so, uh, so I interviewed for it. It's an interesting story how I ended up getting the job. And I, and I actually went to France. I ended up in Paris and in Lyon. And not on the French Riviera, but I uh, had a couple of great years there. And one thing led to another and, um, and really to a, a gratifying real estate career. Very interesting. I, I'm curious about what your time was like in Lyon. I was just sitting down with a, a, a French chef, Daniel Belloud, who, uh, who grew up in Lyon. So we were just talking about his childhood there. Well, any takeaways living in another country that just helps you throughout your career? Well, I think it broadens your perspective. You really do understand things uh, in ways that you would not otherwise see them. The same thing happens with a foreign language. It's, there's a different way of describing the same event that almost uses different words. Well, it does use obviously different words, but almost different concepts. And so it's a different lens. And I think that's really helpful. Um, I would also say, though, that people are people. Humans, uh, the world over, have the same desires. And while some may think the French, say, are difficult or whatever, I, some of my great friends are French. They're very warm. And people say the same thing about people in New York. 
And there are, you know, many, many warm people in New York. And of course, JetBlue is headquartered in New York. And we've got lots of great people here. And so to me, you learn to be flexible. You know, so I think putting yourself out of your comfort zone is a great experience. Can, can we talk about that flexibility and getting out of your comfort zone? I'm even thinking, especially early on, where, where you take on almost these stretch roles and try to develop yourself as much as possible. Any, any stories come to mind for you about stretching yourself early on? Well, yeah, a couple. One is uh, I was asked to basically be a leasing agent, to lease space, and that was really a sales oriented job going out and knocking on doors and talking to people, which isn't what I thought I'd trained for. But uh, I, I found that it was really how you learn the market, really how you learn to overcome reticence, uh, shyness, what, whatever held, held you back. So that was really uh, very much that. And then uh, I figured out a complex uh, financial transaction that had the people in Dallas say, hey, we ought to bring this kid back to the United States to be our treasurer. So I got back to the U.S. and found that it, the company had no cash. And of course, that's what treasurers do is cash. <laughs> and so it turned out that the CFO left about six months later. And I found myself at age 29 as the CFO of this burgeoning real estate company out of cash and under stress. And uh, it, my job quickly became workouts. In other words, meeting with lenders and restructuring debts and, uh, you know, dealing with problems one after another. Unfortunately, they were problems that I hadn't created, which makes it a little bit easier. But problems are problems, and people have emotions, and they threaten, and the negotiations are difficult. For me, it was it was boot camp. It was Marine boot camp. Yeah. Can you even go further in into the narrative going through your head at that time, a young age being thrown to the wolves almost? How are you handling the stress of that? Well, you know, it, the nice thing about it was it was so stressful and it was so uh, there was so much going on. And I was so young that it's not like I had a bunch of job offers or people coming at me to take on, you know, high level positions. Uh, and I was doing something that felt really important with people that I really liked. And I really believed that nobody would do a better job at leasing up and working out these buildings that uh, had been built and the market had softened and. Uh, so I really felt like we had a, a powerful platform and it just needed to be scrubbed and fixed and uh, that it was a really important thing. And then very quickly, I got the idea that uh, we could create what I called an evergreen company. You know, most deal companies are oriented around deals and they live as long as the principals are excited about doing the deals and then they die and move on. I really wanted to build a company that would endure. And so that became kind of a mission for me, and that sustained me through about two decades. I, I want to hit on that evergreen mindset in a second, but I'm really intrigued about just the natural self-belief you seem to have had at this time. Was that something you always had, or were you just developing it at this period? You know, I was lucky in that I had parents uh, who really believed I could do no wrong. I don't think I gave them really much to go on that would make them believe that, but I was the <laughs> oldest of five children. And uh, they just thought I hung the moon. And so uh, I didn't want to let them down ever. And so I made sure I got good grades. I made sure I was a student body officer. I made sure I got my chores done on time. I was just a very dutiful child. And I found myself boxed into that brand early on. And they were very supportive and 
forgiving. And so it just, you know, one thing led to another. You start to develop a bit of momentum around something. And that's really what happened to me. Yeah, it's funny how how key that early momentum can be and building on that. So let's let's dive into the, into the evergreen mindset there, and it, it seems very insightful that that you understand the long term game even at an early age. Where where did you develop this philosophy from? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I just I've never liked, although it's a funny thing, you know. I, I've I've always been kind of a deal oriented person, but I've never believed that ne- negotiations are episodic. I've also f- always felt that they're part of a series, that we will run into each other, the people that we've negotiated with over and over in our lives, either by reputation or in person. And so uh, there's always felt to me like the world is a small place. Maybe it's growing up in a small town in Michigan, you know, where you kind of knew everybody or a university campus where the faculty sent their kids to similar schools. Or I just felt like there was this sense of community that made it so that you wanted to make decisions where the second and third order consequences were good ones and where you thought forward three to five years. I think it's hard to think forward much longer than that, but I think a lot of people think forward a week or a day or the moment and to me, it always is a good thing to step back and say, what will this decision look like in three years? And I think it allows you to make wise decisions. Yeah, that's an incredibly important principle to live your life by. It seems like you'll you'll constantly be running into, into better outcomes. You mentioned those second and third order consequences. How often are you able to step back and assess those when, when you're dealing with complex scenarios in your business. I, th- I think so many of us just get caught up in the day-to-day, and I'm wondering how we can better carve out time to really think through the long-term effects of some of these decisions we make. I think it is, uh, it's not easy to really know exactly what will happen, but I think it is really easy to have as one of the items on your checklist, how will this look in three years? And usually that's a question of how will this affect the markets? How will this affect our employees? How will this affect the people who may want to join us down the road? What will this do to our brand? Uh, and I think if you think through those kinds of questions, uh, you say, you know, while this may work in the moment, I'll bet that our brand will take a big hit. No, that makes perfect sense. It, it's been fun. I, I've had the week here sitting through your book and just taking notes on different elements and different aspects. And one of the things you talk a lot about is self-analysis, and that's introspection. And so I'm wondering, for someone who's early in their career, what can they be doing just to better analyze themselves? You know, um, I think getting feedback, seeking feedback, and listening to it, not being offended by it. In fact, that kind of feedback is a gift. And if somebody gives you feedback that is negative, uh, you ought to give them a hug. You ought to embrace it. You ought to tell them what you're going to do about it. Uh, But to always be on the prowl for feedback. It's not that you're looking to please others with everything that you do, but you want to know how what you do impacts other people. And the more sensitive you become, the more sensitized you become to that, the more able you are to think through these second and third order consequences and make wise decisions that will have great long-term impact. I think asking questions along the way and listening well, and and really just being alive to this notion that I want to improve. 
I'm a work in progress. Um, I mean, there's a lot, I hear people sometimes say, well, that's just how I am. And I think that's so self-defeating. You know, yeah, you are today. This is how you are. But you're not derivative of your emotions. You're not derivative of your past or of your parents or your peers or teachers, whatever. You are the author of your own operating system. Take control of your life. And that really takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of thought and a lot of analysis of feedback. And so and, and if you see that as a journey, as something that you're really excited about, you wake up every day saying, how can I get better today? Joel, it's so apparent the amount of time you've spent on this, and I love your verbiage around this, always be on the prowl. You're not letting things just happen to you. You're going out and making them happen, which is what I really like to hear about because you've been through all of those scenarios. You've been to the front lines, so it's great to hear about that. When we're thinking about change, how much do you think you've changed throughout your career with all this self, self-work self and introspection that you've done? I think... Uh, I've changed a lot. I think, uh, in fact, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Ray Dalio and I were uh, section mates at Harvard Business School uh, in the early 70s. And I think if you were to ask our section mates who were the two least likely to succeed of anybody in our section, it would have been Ray and me. We were both directly out of undergraduate school. We'd gone to not you know, we hadn't gone to Yale or Harvard or Princeton or uh, any of the Ivies. Um, and we were just sort of street smart kids. And um, and so, uh, you know, I can't, I can't remember where I was taking us on that, but maybe that popped into my mind when you asked that question. No, it was funny. I had that. I loved that story in the book. So I had the note to, to ask about Ray because one of the things it seems like you've really been able to develop throughout your life is your ability to talent spot and, and building out great teams and, and also how you invest in other businesses. So I'm wondering, what was it about Ray that you didn't think he was going to be successful early on? And how did you learn from that? <laughs> well, uh, so he was what I what I think he would call a chartist. You know, he was a kind of a, he really liked the technical analysis of markets. And they have certain ways of going about looking at, you know, how long a stock will stay up or down or how fast it's moving or whatever. And, and they regard these as predictive. And to me, it was just voodoo. <laughs> so it just didn't make, I was just totally a fundamentalist. So, uh, but I always liked Ray. He was always such a great guy. Um, and, and you're right. Going back to the point about talent, I actually think that my career has largely been built around my ability to A, build others, select talent, and then build and coach great teams. I think really that's how you win. And so I've been in lots of different industries, lots of different situations from growth to turnaround to whatever. But in every case, uh, I think it's that that has allowed me to, to be successful. I actually, you know, this book that you just referenced, I really was trying to say, you know, what makes for the entrepreneurial leader, what are the things that they have to do? And I really decided that they have to drill the bedrock for things. One is they have to have a high trust currency, that trust will prevail in good and bad markets and will allow long-term durable growth. They have to then be clear about what their objective is. They every objective is like a mountain range. You can pick any number of peaks, but having the entire team climbing the same peak is really valuable. The third thing they have to do is put together a great team. And what that means is 
sourcing great people, interviewing them, doing due diligence on them, onboarding them, coaching them, promoting them, demoting them, and ultimately removing the ones that aren't great. And then the final thing is they have to execute to perfection. And so I give about 10 maps that I really think are the things that every entrepreneurial leader is going to have to do to execute to perfection. So the idea was, how can you uh, become an entrepreneurial leader. If you're not naturally inclined that way, here's a recipe book. Here's a roadmap. Here's a series of, of checkpoints that you can use and get better at it. So that was the idea anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's so helpful for someone like myself. I mean, you break up that four-point part framework and you're building the trust, creating a mission, securing the team, and that's going to deliver the results you want. So it's incredibly helpful for someone like myself. I would love if you could just hit on the difference, though, between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneurial leader and, and the differences there. Yeah, so entrepreneurs are innovators. They light fires. They're incredible. If you've ever been around a pure entrepreneur, and I know you have, they're amazing. They come up with an idea minute. They uh, One of my favorites is David Neeleman, who founded JetBlue. You can't walk anywhere with David without him going over to, say, the, the umbrella rank rack and looking at it and saying, I wonder where they made these. I wonder what this costs. I wonder why they're charging them. I wonder if I could do this someplace else for less. I mean, he's just, he just can't stop uh, from doing that sort of thing. He's a pure entrepreneur. But being an entrepreneurial leader is somebody who can create durable change. So the difference is entrepreneurs create change, but they may not be able to manage it. They may not be able to get the team in place, put the systems in place, uh, get give the feedback, rem remove uh, folks that aren't able to do it, and develop a strategy and the tactics necessary to execute it so that they end up with a durable enterprise. So the entrepreneurial leader is really a refinement. So I, I, I describe several kinds of se several elements of leadership, one of which is entrepreneurial entrepreneurship. You have so many great frameworks in the book, and it, it's it's obvious this has been a, a career in the making to, to, to codify all of these. I'm wondering, how long have you had most of these frameworks in place for? Is this something you had on early in your career, and then you've just continued to build on them, or is this more recent? So it's clearly a work in progress. Um, I've always been inclined to figure things out and say, are there principles uh, can I repeat something and increase my odds of having a good outcome? So I've always had a map. I've found that some of my maps have been bad, <laughs> frankly. You know, it just haven't worked and I've been naive or whatever. And so I've had to relearn them, overwrite them. So I've continued to refine and refine uh, these maps. Uh, I had the good fortune 28 years ago of being on the advisory council at the Stanford Business School and they lost the guy who was teaching the real estate finance course. So they asked me if I would fill in for a year until they found uh, the replacement. And so I did that and 28 years later, I'm still there and I've migrated into teaching entrepreneurship and leadership and a managerial skills course. And uh, through that process, I've learned I, it, it's, I, I can't really just tell war stories to students. I really have to develop a framework and then I have to have data that supports it and and stories and a way so that the framework has actually fleshed itself out through the classroom process. So I've taught some 3,500 uh, 
MBAs now who are all over the world doing amazing things. And I still get notes from them saying, I keep using your framework. <laughs> Do you think that's been the main thing for you, flushing out those those frameworks as a teacher that's helped you become a better leader in the businesses you're involved with? Or, or are there other key things as well? Well, I think that's part of it. But I actually think it wouldn't have worked had I not been also in the laboratory. So I've been on 35 boards I've started um, some five or six companies. And so I've, I've been in the laboratory basically trying things out and continuing to make mistakes and finding things. And, and again, I would say there's no perfect answer for any of this stuff. In certain conditions, one thing will work and in others, it'll be a total disaster. So I think, um, I think being in the real world as well as in the classroom uh, has actually helped knock the rough edges off some of these maps. No, that's, that's why I love conversations like this, Joel, because there's not going to be one clearly defined answer. So I, I'd yeah. really love getting your perspective. You were just hitting on it a second ago about when, when you're thinking of starting that new entrepreneurial endeavor and just finding that balance between being prepared in theory but not in practice. How do you, how do you know when it's time to put down the business books and actually start getting something off the ground? Well, it's... I would say sooner is better than later. And, uh, you know, there's an expression they use out in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, that is fail quickly. And by that, they don't mean fail. <laughs> Failure is good. Failure is pretty painful. But they mean go get market feedback quickly. Once you have an idea and you think the market will do something, get out to market as fast as you can. The market will force you to refine, adjust get rid of certain things. A lot of what you think in theory is right won't be when you test it against reality. But if you never get out there, if you keep refining before you take it to market, you'll, uh, you'll end up with a perfect something that nobody will buy. Another one of the keys you hit on again here is receiving feedback. So, so I'm thinking about these feedback loops. And I think early in your career, when you're testing, you're failing, experimenting, it's easier. But someone like yourself, who's been in multiple positions of power, how do you have those underneath you provide the proper feedback so you can assess your own decision making? So that's a really good question. I think it's a really important one. And I think a lot of leaders get isolated uh, because people are reticent to give feedback. I mean, what are the percentages of going to a boss and saying, hey, you really blew that? Uh, you know, most people get punished. For that, So I think you have to go out and seek it and you have to give positive feedback when you receive negative feedback. Uh, one of the things that I learned fairly early on in my career was to have feedback be a regular thing, not, not a once a year performance review, but really regular after a meeting. How did the meeting go? What did you think about this? Or actually give yourself negative feedback. Say, I think I blew it. I think I should have done X, Y, or Z. What do you think? So that people know you're open to that. Another key, I believe, for feedback is when you ask somebody for feedback, if you don't say anything, if you don't give them feedback about it, you've actually made it pretty clear that their feedback is not welcome and you'll never get it again. Whereas if you give me feedback and say, look, Joel, I think these are the three or four things that you are really following up on. And I come back to you and say, I've thought about these. I think I'm going to start working on point two and three, and here's what I'm going to do. Then you'll say, wow, my feedback had impact. It was important. And you'll be more thoughtful in your feedback. I'll get more and better feedback. And we'll have this dialogue of constant 
interplay that builds trust over time. If I have no agenda other than to help you become the best Sean that can ever be, you'll trust me and you'll appreciate the feedback. I used to have a guy that I called every Saturday morning and talked about what was going on in the business. And uh, after a minute or two, he'd say, am I getting ready to have some some breakfast? Because I called feedback the breakfast of champions. You know, so he'd say, are we getting ready to have some breakfast? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always great when you can find people in your life to, to provide that feedback. And you were, just, you were just hitting on one of those big words there, trust. And I know you've written a lot in the past about trust, and a lot of your life has been built on this trust framework. I would love to just hear your, your present-day thoughts around trust and the importance in everyone's life. Well, I think having a high-trust brand is evidence of a life well-lived. And uh, I think you have to work at it. Uh, you can build trust, as they say, a conversation at a time and destroy it in a New York minute. Uh, so it's one way sticky. Uh, I think it is the most powerful currency one has. Uh, it's particularly evident in a turnaround. For example, if things aren't going well, if you don't have high trust with suppliers, creditors, investors, employees, all those that you work with, buyers, etc., you'll not survive. Because uh, they will ultimately, they'll be relying on: Is this person somebody who's going to tell me really what's going on? I can rely on their word. If you have that, odds are you'll get through tough times, and you'll actually build trust uh, in those moments. So, to me, uh, the the great message of so I wrote this book called The Ten Laws of Trust, and the great message that I wanted to get across was that you can be intentional about building a high trust culture. There are laws, it's derivative of be certain behaviors. And by following these rules, these laws, these principles, you can actually increase the trust levels in your organization. And that's, a, that's an important thing, because I think a lot of people think, oh, trust is just this fuzzy feel-good notion that I have. I like you, therefore I trust you. And it's not at all. It's a very hard-edged concept with measures, and, and you can measure it within a within an organization. Organizations can get better at it. And uh, so, in any event, HarperCollins bought uh, AMA, who had first published the book, and they wanted to do a second edition. But they said, look, I have, we've got to have 30% more material. And so they asked me, well, what are the two things everybody asks you about when you talk about trust? And I said, well, the two things are, number one, how do I know what the trust level of my organization is? Because leaders don't ever learn that. So we built a diagnostic so you can do that. And the second thing was, what do you do if you've been betrayed? You know, can you overcome it? What do you do about being betrayed? And, and can, can I ever trust again fully if I've been betrayed? So in any event, the new edition deals with, uh, deals with that. But it is kind of foundational to a part of becoming an entrepreneurial leader. Yeah, you mentioned how foundational it is, and it's, it's making me think back to, to 2008 when you became chairman of JetBlue, and you guys, I think you were losing, I think it was $84 million a year at the time. Can, yep. can you talk about just that time and embracing the challenges that come along with that type of turnaround? So, yeah, it means that there are changes you need to make, and usually they have to do with people. Um, it's usually that either people or processes. And so you, we had some of both of those. And so it's just, I think it's being intentional, going about it and saying, how are we doing on this, that, and the other? What do we need to keep doing? What do we need to change? And so I instituted a number of new things. For example, as a board, we had never had offsites, which is like a two-day meeting where you can do more than just 
Sarbanes-Oxley or Dodd-Frank uh, administrative matters as a board. But you really can say, who are we? What is our brand? How are we financed? How are we going to win? And so for the last 12 years, we've had offsite. So, so it's a bunch of granular things that sort of I get into in the last chapters, which is how do you do each of these tactical things that you're going to run into as an entrepreneurial leader? How do you do them better than you would naturally do them? Yeah, this makes me think of your leadership style. And uh, General Stanley McChrystal said this of you, and he says, the verb I often use to describe Joel is that he shapes things. When Joel is leading people, the group feels a unique sense of pride and accomplishment because Joel deflects credit away from himself and toward them. I, you, can, you can see the impact just by General McChrystal's words here about you. And is that what this comes down to at the end of the day? This is all about people? Well, a lot of leadership, I mean, you are leading people, you're managing things and leading people. So people have to trust you. And, uh, and I actually think leaders who uh, absorb all the credit are not ones that are trusted over time. I think your job as a leader is to absorb blame and reflect credit and to build teams that like and respect each other. You know, as this old saw about, uh, you know, if you can, uh, have people be respected members of a winning team doing something meaningful, you can really build a great organization. And so I always solve for those three things. And so when Stan wrote that about me, I felt like I'm ready to die. You know, that's, what you, that's where I'd like to be. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's one of the most in, in impressive people. Uh, I've been yeah. fortunate enough to be around him and, and just his aura and the lessons you can take away. Uh, so for him to say those words about you speaks volumes about yourself. One thing that I've always taken away from you is it just seems like your ability to control your emotions and more importantly, to control those emotions, to make clear decisions during high stress moments. Are there certain things or, or tactics you've developed over time to help with this and your decision-making ability during high-stress scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I have some rules. I, I think you set up guardrails for yourself, and they're different for different people. But for me, it is uh, just don't ever lose control. Uh, do more listening than talking. Uh, I think uh, criticizing other people in front of their peers, never comes out well. Um, I, I'm always, I, I, I often watch people who are, are cursed out or when somebody's swearing or whatever, and, it, and you usually see people shutting down. And so I've always said, I'm going to steer clear of that. And I think this uh, idea of counting to 10 when you're feeling upset, and people do that in different ways. I go off and do a walk or something, just get out of the situation for a while and think about it. I think about all the things I'm grateful for, and that allows me to come back in and say, okay, now let's take on this problem. This has been a disappointment or a concern or whatever. But in the big picture, I'm really grateful for my health, my family. You know, you, you, There's something about perspective that allows for that. So I've always had a bunch of these little uh, you know, heuristics that allow me to sort of deal with whatever are normally mo emotional situations for folks. Thank you, Joel, for, for pulling back the curtain there and, and being open and honest about what you do uh, just to help navigate those scenarios. I, I want to get back into just your ability to spot talent. And I keep thinking about you becoming the first investor in Bonobos. And I'd be so interested 
what you're looking for when you're going to make an investment in a person or a company? Yeah, so I actually learned, I think, the best map ever from Trammell Crow. And he used to say, I hire brains and heart. Hmm. I can give them experience. And I thought that was a really good, simple way of thinking about it. You're not going to change somebody's IQ. And it's very difficult to change what they've learned at their mother's knee, which is sort of their character, their heart. If you get those right, the odds are they can learn most other things. Now, if the job is programming, you probably need to have some of that kind of skill. Too. But, but I think, uh, you know, the, the main map is to make sure that people are smart uh, because you're not going to change that and that they have high character. And so I tend to hang around people that are both and they tend to know lots of other people who are both. And, um, you know, you, you, you just end up sourcing folks from those you know. Is that almost the only way to source that? Or have you come across any, any companies or, or pattern matching uh, data that has allowed you to get more in touch with these types of people? Well, I think the danger in that is you end up hiring yourself over and over or hiring people. And you, you lack the diversity and inclusion. So I think you have to be intentional about saying, I want to broaden the sieve. So I, I actually will use search firms for that and say, look, we are looking for clearly brains and heart, these kinds of characteristics. But we would also like exposure to a population I might not otherwise run into. And that has allowed that to happen. So I think there's a danger in it. But you can address it if you're if you're thoughtful about it. No, that's such a great point. I think you might even bring up in the book that it's almost like an orchestra, and you need to have all those different instruments playing together uh, to create a great symphony. Yep. So, with regards to Bonobo specifically, what was it about about those founders, that company, that made you say, "Here's my money. I believe in you guys." <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because uh, the the one guy, uh, Andy Dunn. Uh, was a young man that I did a, uh, a first-year project with. He was going to import South African biltong, which is beef jerky. And I had been in the salty snack foods business, and it ended up taking a company into bankruptcy and restructuring it. And I pulled him aside after and said, Andy, I'll give you an H, which is the top grade, but don't do this business. This is a really bad business. You'll get your head handed to you. And uh, so he didn't show up for a year and a half. I didn't see him. And then all of a sudden he shows up in my office after graduation and says, okay, I've found it. I'm going to import men's pants. I'm going to do, I'm going to sell men's pants over the internet. And I thought, oh my gosh, this makes Biltong look smart. Uh, but, but I, you know, being a teacher is a really nice thing because you really are just pulling for the entrepreneur. So I said, well, sit down and give me your pitch. And so he, he sat down, he gave me the pitch, and 45 minutes later, I became his first investor. So, and it's because he's so articulate, so energetic, so thoughtful. And then I happened to know uh, his co-founder, Brian Spaley, who had also taken a class with me. And I found him to be extraordinarily transparent, thoughtful, insightful, just an amazing guy. And so uh, in any event, when their partnership split up, I ended up backing Brian in his new venture, too. So, uh, you know, you just if you stay around these great people, let them talk, give them feedback, develop high trust relationships with them. You know, some of them you're going to end up uh, wanting to be in business with in some form or another. 
you were just talking about about teaching, and I know you've had just tremendous impact over the years on many of your students. And so I know you're someone who can really step back and, and analyze yourself. What do you think you've done well as a teacher? Um, you know, I, I think I, so this will sound, this may sound self-congratulatory, uh, so I apologize for that. But I think I really care. You know, I think the students know that I am pulling for them, that I am a fiduciary. In fact, I, I tell them that I love them. Uh, even though I don't like some of them, I love them. And what that means is I am really looking out for whatever is best for them. I really want that. And I think they can feel that. Now, it can't be that I just tell myself that. I really have to feel that way. And that takes time and thought and uh, energy. And, you know, a lot of times it means taking phone calls from them over a weekend or staying in touch with them 20 years later or you know, any number of things, backing them in businesses or helping them sort through uh, roommate or marriage issues. But I think it's a lot of that. I, I guess the other thing I would say to be fully disclosive is when I first started, I went to a friend of mine who is a, a tenure line professor at Harvard Business School and, and said, could you coach me for a day so that I don't blow it? And he, uh, he gave me a lot of advice. And he said, the one thing you shouldn't do is tell war stories. You know, too many lecturers go in and they just they they give their autobiography as their class. He said, "You need to have a theory. You need to have a, a way." So I tried very hard never to tell a war story the first uh, few weeks I was teaching, and then one slipped in, and I could tell the students totally got it, and uh, and pretty soon I realized that people learn by induction. Scholars develop parsimonious theories that are wonderful and uh, teach by deduction, um, but students really learn by induction. So I've learned to weave stories into things, and I think people can relate to these stories, and they remember the stories. Years and years later, they remember the story. Yeah, I think this is a, a great takeaway for anyone, even even people who aren't teachers, uh, and how you can get those people around you even better aligned. You, you mentioned just the ability to learn, and I'm wondering what you've done throughout the years, you just mentioned bringing on a coach. Is there anything you do currently just to learn new topics, new subjects, new businesses? Um, well, I learned from all the young people that I'm around. Young people are fantastic. Um, they, they are, they expose me to everything, but then I, I do a lot of, I used to do a lot of reading, but now I do a lot of uh, listening on audible. And so I'm just looking up here, and I'll just read off a few of the titles so you get a feeling for what I'm reading. And it may surprise you because you're not going to hear many business books. One Summer by Bill Bryson, Napoleon by Andrew Roberts, Churchill by Andrew Roberts, uh, Range by David Epstein, uh, No Higher Honor by Condi Rice, uh, Grant by Ron Chernow, Washington by Ron Chernow. Thomas Jefferson by John Meacham, John Adams, David McCullough, Truman, David McCullough. So you can see that there's kind of a pattern, a theme there. And so you'd say, well, why, why are you studying these old dead presidents? And I just find that they have run into these enormous challenges in their life where the trade-offs are not clear. Every decision is a 51-49 decision. And in my experience, that's where ethics and character come in, is at that point. The 90-10 decisions are easy. 
they don't require anything of you. But these 5149 decisions are really tough. And in many cases, you'll make you'll take the wrong side of the bet and you have to turn it in to the right side. So I, I love reading that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it is funny. Your bookshelf seems to be very similar to the one in the room next to me. Almost all of those titles uh, are on one shelf. So that's interesting. What about throughout your life? Are there any books that have just had the most profound impact on you? Yeah. Uh, so it's funny. We had a birthday party the other a few years back, and they they had a game where my grandkids were asked, "What is Grandpa's favorite book?" And they all knew. And so I was just amazed that they had internalized the thing. But it's one called um, "A Short History of Nearly Everything" by Bill Bryson. And it's really the history of how we know all the things we know. It's a bunch of anecdotes on how we discovered everything we've discovered. And I just found it to be a really interesting anthology of stories about our modern world and how we got here. So did all the grandkids know that was the answer? Yeah. Because of the yeah, lessons that, that you've pulled from that over the years? Yeah. <laughs> so, so well, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, I think this idea of sharing your life with people you love is really important. So, I mean, another thing I think I mentioned in the book is that I, every Saturday I write an email to all of my kids and their spouses and just, you know, what I'm thinking, what's going on in my life and everything. And so every week now for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, they have this running history of what the old man is thinking about. And it connects, it's a, it's, it creates a tissue that's ongoing that connects our lives. Yeah, it's funny. I was going to ask you, I mean, of course, we can assess the short-term benefits of receiving an email like that, but I, I'm wondering even more the impact on the long-term. I'm almost thinking it's like myelin in the brain that the, the more used and build up over time, the stronger the, those neural connections get. So have you done that over years? What is the impact that has on your family? You'd have to ask them, but I, I have had uh, one daughter-in-law has said, I've saved all of them in a file. And I'm eager to s share them with my kids. Um, I, 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 they can pretty much count on me at uh, Armistice Day or D-Day or, or, you know, important dates, telling them the story, the history. So and, and more than just them knowing the history, then they know that it's important to their grandfather. Hmm. You know, that's something I really care deeply about. You know, I had a father that was a uh, a bomb disposal officer in World War II. And so I got this sense of how powerful our history is and the contribution of the military to our liberty and everything. And so I've just had this incredible reverence that I've wanted to pass on to my, to my grandkids. And, of course, they never get exposure to it. Uh, we're, we're not teaching history the way we used to. Uh, we're not. The, the world has changed so much that unless I pass it on, I fear they won't get it. I just feel so fortunate for your family that they get to relive that over the years here. And, and I'm just thinking in my own life, my own family, ways that I can incorporate things like this. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, I know one of the things that really got me interested uh, in doing research for this is just the number of different domains you've found success in. I mean, we, we've talked about salty snacks, real estate, clothing, teaching, all of these different domains. And I'm interested about just the overall pattern recognition and your ability to apply these models in different scenarios. Is that one of the key things is just that what worked here 
you can lay a similar structure in another domain? Well, you know, I think there are really powerful principles of analyzing markets, thinking about human dynamic internal organizations. There are principles for running meetings, for setting priorities, for communicating, for following up. You know, I have this simple regimen for getting things done, which is to say, I turn, try to turn everything into a project. And every project has a champion, a budget, a timetable, and deliverables. And if you're clear about those and if you measure them and on a certain regularity and give feedback, those projects tend to be done. And you can't have too many of them. So there's a bunch of rules like that, that whether in you know, the salty snack food business or the clothing business or the real estate business, they all apply. So I think there's more that's alike than not. I've even found in um, the not-for-profit arena that some of the thing, same things obtain. Now, there's... There's more resist. People are less used to it in that kind of an environment. I think in the academic environment, people don't like uh, necessarily that framework, but it actually helps them get stuff done. So, is that something I know you were talking about your reading list a minute ago? That that you're trying to study these different domains to see how you can apply them to your own life? No, I'm just. Uh, well, maybe so. I mean, a lot of, of what I'm studying are, are autobiography or biographies. And so I'm really just trying to figure out how human beings have dealt with uncertainty and challenge and adversity. I think uh, I, I've sort of felt like if you're not dealing with adversity, you're probably either asleep or you're not trying hard enough stuff um, in your life. So I, I've always found that I'm, I've always got a few challenges and things that I'm worried about. And I want to know how other people have done it gotten through it. Yeah. One of, one of the things I love about your book, uh, I know this isn't the, the finalized copy, but you have the, the picture of the mountain and, and almost the trekking pattern because that, that's, that's the journey. That's the life. And, and a word I kept writing down, uh, kept coming up was perseverance. And I would love yeah. to just get your, your thoughts on perseverance throughout your life. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of perseverance is just getting up when you've been knocked down, you know, just never giving up, just, uh, you know, I, I guess that's one of the things I've taken away from this most recent Churchill biography by Andrew Roberts is uh, Churchill saying that all of the bad things that happened to him in his life turned out to have been the best things. And many of the best things turned out to have been the worst. And so I think if, have, if you have that perspective on it, uh, you know, you say, how can I turn this disappointment, this reversal into something that is great? And I've actually found that to be true. In many cases, they're not things I would have wished on my worst enemy, but I've grown from them in ways that I would not otherwise have grown. I absolutely love that. It's such a great perspective. And, and someone with your amount of experience telling that right now, I think about myself and, and how important that is in that perspective. So I'd, I'd love kind of as we wrap up here, just to get your thoughts, the new book out April 21st, Entrepreneurial Leadership, The Art of Launching New Ventures, Inspiring Others, and Running Stuff. What's it like now coming out with another book? How difficult has the process been? And, and then how much do you learn during this process? So I, I love the idea of getting ideas out and frameworks out that can help other people. I love having people say, oh my gosh, that really helped me. I now have a new way of looking at something or this helped me crack a, a problem that I was working on. I, I just love that. What I hate about it is the interest in me, you know, the messenger. 
uh, I don't want it to be about me. Uh, I don't like, you know, focusing. I, I, I find that so much of what authors need to do is self-promote. They need to get out on TV shows and give speeches. And a lot of what people are interested in is you as a person. And I guess in some ways what I've done gives credibility to what I'm saying. But I'm really excited about what I'm saying because I think it can make a difference. Uh, and I realize that I'm no great thing. I've made a lot of mistakes. And the reason I'm there is because I've fumbled the ball a bunch of times. So I, I don't want to relive all that. So that's the part I don't love about it. But I, I do love the, the result if it f- affects people positively. No, Joel, I, I have to share with you and, and someone who is a younger entrepreneur I cannot tell you the amount I've taken away from the book. It was funny. I was I was messaging a bunch of friends, screenshotting different passages in the book, and seeing someone like yourself who's been able to, to tackle these different domains, have experiences that led to failure, ones that have led to success. I think it's so important to to learn from people like you. So I'm so glad that you that you did bite the bullet and uh, you you put out all these frameworks because the book. It, I mean, it's like a playbook. Uh, for those next generation of, of entrepreneurial leaders. So so thank you for that. So the book is going to be out April 21st. Is there anywhere else, Joel, you'd like listeners staying connected with you, uh, diving into some of the other work you've done, anything like that? You know, I should have looked this up before we spoke. I, I You can tell I'm really bad at this. Well, don't worry. I, I will we'll, we'll I make sure any anywhere you're found on the internet, we're going to have it linked up uh, so they can okay, access good. you. They do have, I know there's a, I know I'm on LinkedIn. I know there's a Twitter account. I know there's a, a website that I think is Joel C. Peterson, but I'm not, you can tell I'm just really bad at this. No worries at all. We'll have that all linked up. Everyone can just click on the links below to stay connected with Joel. But Joel, I, I really can't thank you enough. I, I meant everything I said about the book, your work, and the amount I've learned from you. So thanks so much for joining us on What Got You There. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a pleasure to talk. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.